Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Last week, there was big news when the U.S. Department of Treasury, Office of Foreign Assets Control, announced sanctions against Task Force Rusich, a Russian paramilitary organization affiliated with the Wagner Group. So this week, I'm joined by my colleague, Andrew Fearman, who's head of sanctions strategy for Chainalysis, so we can better understand what's going on here. Chainalysis recently reported that since the start of the war in Ukraine, 54 pro-Russian groups have collectively solicited cryptocurrency donations worth over $2.2 million. It's believed that they're using these funds to procure supplies and weapons for military action in Ukraine. After the episode, if you'd like to go deeper on this topic, check out the show notes for the link to the Chainalysis blog. All right, today we've got an exciting one. I'm joined by my colleague, Andrew Fearman. Welcome to the show, Andrew. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Ian? Terrific. Excited to talk about this topic. For listener context, last week, the U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control designated 22 individuals and two entities for their roles in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Among those designated is Task Force Rusich, a neo-Nazi paramilitary group associated with PMC Wagner that's participated in combat alongside Russia's military in Ukraine, as well as two of its senior leaders. OFAC listed five cryptocurrency addresses on Rusich's SDN entry as identifiers. Given this news, I wanted to talk to you about some research that your team published in July about how pro-Russian groups are using cryptocurrency. Give us the headline on on this new research. Yeah, so I think, you know, everyone's been talking about how this has been an open source war. You know, everyone was seeing the videos early on of the attacks. Uh, I think a lot of us can remember at the very outset of the war, uh, sitting watching the Kiev uh, live streams. And we started thinking about, okay, we have all of this information in open source. Everyone's sharing all of this, uh, you know, videographic pictures on social media. How can that kind of tie into cryptocurrency? And and who's out there using cryptocurrency, whether, uh, you know, obviously we saw early on also the donations for Ukraine, but let's flip this picture around a little bit and think more about how pro-Russian uh, side could be doing it. So we kind of started thinking about a few leads that already existed, um, one of which we speak about in the article is an entity by the name Southfront. They were designated by OFAC in April of last year as a FSB-driven propaganda machine, essentially. And their cryptocurrency addresses were included as part of their designation. So we started thinking, okay, if they're doing this, who else might be doing this? And that kind of got us into this whole stream of thought about propaganda, militia groups, and, and where that could be coming from. This is fascinating. The idea of an open source war, it really is true. Like technology has permeated the war front. You know, you think back to uh, something like the conflict in Vietnam 50 years ago, and you, you had journalists, you know, who were sending back to newspapers that were printed, you know, stories days later. We're, we're watching this live kind of streaming to our phones. I know personally, I've spent the last few months kind of waking up every day and looking at Twitter and then at various other news sources kind of to see what's happened overnight in the conflict. What was the big takeaway here? Are pro-Russia militia groups actually using crypto to fund some of their activities? I mean, from all signs that we see, absolutely. Um, we have a very clear image that's being highlighted on social media. We're not just talking about some thinly veiled reports where they're posting an address here or there, or we have to go uh, down some forum rabbit hole to find some information. These guys are very openly, publicly showing off, 
hey, we need X amount of money for purchasing these military items, or your recent uh, investment in our cause has helped us purchase these items. And you've got these really graphic you know, photos of militia groups. You've got the Z uh, marked over a lot of vehicles and, and different gear. The Z, if, uh, for those who aren't aware, is uh, a pro-Russia you know, indicator about the war itself. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's very pervasively obvious that that is what uh, is the case here. I want to jump into the details of, of what these groups are doing, what they're buying, how they're crowdfunding. But before we jump there, this is your first time on the podcast. Maybe share with us a little bit of your background. You recently joined Chainalysis. How, how did you get into crypto? What was your first exposure and, and how did that lead you to, to join our team? Yeah, absolutely. So I spent almost a decade in uh, traditional financial institutions, uh, building out sanctions compliance programs, but with a real specific focus of uh, identifying proactively how illicit actors are evading sanctions, how they're getting around the traditional financial system. In my financial institution life, thinking about some of the risks that cryptocurrency may inherently bring to traditional banking. So things like mining pools or uh, cryptocurrency exchange exposure. And how as a financial institution do you think about that risk? And well, my initial answer was no idea. But my second was to start talking to Chainalysis and uh, got speaking to the guys over here and and found this world just utterly fascinating. And given my background in thinking about how sanctions are being evaded in a proactive aspect, thinking about how they might be uh, evading sanctions using cryptocurrency was, it's at the forefront uh, of this space. And I couldn't have been more excited when I, I saw a, a sanction strategy role pop up. That's such an awesome story. I mean, I love that you're playing on the forefront of technology and just kind of continuing that momentum, chasing the bad guys who are trying to abuse the, the financial system. So fast forward to April of this year, like the big question that got dropped on everyone was, you know, will Russia use cryptocurrency to start evading sanctions? And will they do that at scale as the global community came down on them for, for starting this war? So far, though, I think the view has been Russia has not been using cryptocurrency at scale to avoid sanctions. Is that still the perspective that we're holding? Yeah, I mean, like you said, at scale, it, it is really difficult to use cryptocurrency to evade sanctions, given the transparency of the blockchain. Yeah. But with that said, it's also these actors have been facilitating, you know, money laundering through traditional financial institutions for decades. So for these Russian oligarchs, this is nothing new for them. So it's not an instant shift where they suddenly are finding themselves on a sanctions list and need to find an entirely new way to move their money. They've been using shell companies for decades. And so you can see that, you know, as recently in the Panama Papers, where there was a lot of that being discussed just a few years ago, this is nothing new for them. So it's not instantly a moment where, oh man, we have to use cryptocurrency to evade sanctions now. So now fast forward to, to some of these groups that we, we wrote about in the blog. So these are not traditional Russian military. These are sort of paramilitary groups who are operating in, inside the conflict zone. Do we know who any of them are? Can we identify any of these organizations? Are they, are they well known? 
you have to realize this conflict has been going on in eastern Ukraine, you know, since 2014. There have been people operating and acting in this region for a long time. So there have been established militia groups uh, in the Luhansk and Donetsk regions, uh, which have recently been sanctioned by OFAC. Essentially, what that means on the face of it is that any activity in those regions, commercially, financially facilitating or supporting, would be subject to sanctions for anyone subject to U.S. jurisdiction. You know, what What do we know about these organizations? It's not state military. These are kind of paramilitary organizations or mercenaries who have been welcomed in or maybe paid to arrive by uh, Russia. Who are these organizations? Maybe we can start there. There's a pretty good array of, of people who are operating in this space, one of which being the fact that, you know, this region has been contested, you know, since 2014. Um, so some of them are pre-existing. So that's going to be your uh, Luhansk and Donetsk militia groups that are already there. But then you're also seeing mercenary groups coming into play or or entities that are affiliated with mercenary groups. So we mentioned in the blog post an entity by the name of Rusic. So Rusic, a group that has had affiliations to the Wagner group previously. And, you know, they're very clearly posting, you know, on their social media, what kind of donations they're taking, you know, through cryptocurrency and pictures of the materials that they're purchasing and how they're using it. This is one of the things that blew me away in the blog. We'll link to that in the show notes. Folks are posting almost like shopping lists with prices attached to them. I mean, what are they trying to buy? A lot. I mean, anything short of the actual weapons themselves, um, really those items that you could think that somebody might need to uh, re-up on or get more of as they either get more uh, local supporters for their cause or or whether they get a drone shot down. So, you know, uh, you can see things like anything from drones to uh, sniper scopes, thermal imaging, first aid, communications equipment like satellite dishes, you know, SIM cards, radios, UAV components, radio-controlled cars even. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. It's like a poorly run uh, Kickstarter campaign, right? It's like, hey, here's a here's a component shopping list. I'll I'll deliver on my uh, my project in a couple of years. Just help me yeah. buy this stuff. It's pretty amazing. There was like a you know two hundred thousand ruples for UAV components. You know, pretty cheap, all things considered, right? A ruple's currently about two cents in in U.S. dollar denomination. So, two hundred thousand ruples, about thirty four hundred dollars to rebuild their UAV, uh, their drone strike capability. It's not big dollar donations, right? We're not talking hundreds of millions of dollars, but I would imagine, yeah, relatively modest donations. They're also advertising their successes, right? We're seeing some of the the actions they're taking once once these components have been supplied, right? Yeah, and to that point, it's not like they're sitting here purchasing tanks or right. rocket launchers. So it's not actually the big dollar items that are making the impact for these militia groups. What they need are those core components of radios. So, I mean, think about what 15 handheld radios does. It helps 15 different units, however big, from one person to five to I don't know how many people use a radio, but, you know, enough of people that that's making a communication point for those 15 people now. And those radio components cost next to nothing. You got coordination across a battlefield, right? You go from a uncoordinated militia, basically, to one that's probably much more sophisticated and difficult to deal with. The amazing thing, kind of drawing it back to crypto, is we can see all these donations happening on chain 
because the the militia groups are advertising their donation addresses, right? We can see these wallets and we can trace all the funds coming in. Give us a sense of scale here. Like, you know, is this a couple people? Is it thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people? You know, how, how big is the enthusiasm supporting some of these groups? We've identified so far 54 entities that kind of fall into these two categories, either, you know, militia support or propaganda. Firstly, obviously, there are these 54 accounts, but then dozens and dozens of accounts resharing these posts. So there are other groups that are also supporting the efforts that these few that are soliciting donations via crypto, you know, across the board. And we're not talking about, you know, uh, accounts with 100 followers. Some of these have 10, 20, 30,000. Some of them have hundreds of thousands. When we talk about scale, I think for anyone operating in the eastern region of Ukraine right now probably has a good eye on this. And so the 54 accounts is actually the the receiving side. These are the people who are collecting funds. I would imagine they're getting donations of all sizes from a few dollars, few hundred dollars to thousands, tens of thousands in terms of the scale of the donations that are being made. Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing, you know, a wide array, like you said, and it depends on these accounts. Like we mentioned earlier, the amount that they're actually receiving doesn't need to be that much to be really impactful. And in these instances, we're looking at, you know, maybe twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars that they may be receiving, but it's coming from a lot of different people. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there's some pretty prominent individuals who are actually promoting this fundraising, right? So in the blog, we talk about this guy, Alexander Zukovsky. Can you tell us a little bit more about who that is and, and what his involvement's been? He is a Russian national that was recently designated by OFAC. Upon his designation, OFAC explicitly stated that he's used social media to solicit donations for the Russian imperial movement, which is an entity that had been sanctioned by OFAC uh, a few years back. When we got to social media and saw his social media account, He's sitting on there saying, you know, urgent collection for armored protection, posting a picture of a bulletproof vest and saying, hey, listen, if you want to help donate uh, to get these bulletproof vests to the right people, go to this website uh, for this entity by the name Terracon. That led us down a whole nother path. What did we find when we started looking at Terracon? Yeah. So while the overall uh, donation impact was not uh, massive, there were a few different aspects uh, of Terracon's efforts. One of which, um, they actually attempted to develop NFTs uh, for sale. Now, what we saw ultimately uh, was a lot to do about nothing, which is that they were shut down before any of them received bids. So they didn't really make it very far on that front, but they are still uh, soliciting donations just basically via a, a variety of different cryptocurrency addresses. You mentioned NFTs a second ago. So this organization was actually going to mint and sell NFTs as a way to raise funds? I think that was the goal. I mean, it didn't get very far, but yeah, I think I think that was their attempt. It strikes me that if you were in possession of a NFT that was issued by a paramilitary group or a fundraising front for a paramilitary group, it might be like walking around with a, you know, a sign on your shirt that said, hi, I'm, I'm a criminal, please arrest me. Like that doesn't seem like an NFT anyone would actually want to own. Or am I thinking about this the wrong way? No, I mean, that was my going to be my point is like, who would actually want to buy that thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't have to do any sophisticated blockchain analysis to know that a wallet containing one of these NFTs uh, had some suspect ties, right? Like it would be yeah. a, pretty obvious. Now, we also drew some connections here 
to Southfront, maybe even catch the audience up on who Southfront is and then what was their involvement in this this whole fundraising scheme? Yeah, so Southfront is an entity that's been designated by OFAC back since April of uh, 2021. And their whole purpose was uh, to spread misinformation, a lot of it around the election and about COVID. Uh, however, you know, times have changed and they've shifted their focus to war propaganda. Pivoting the business to focus on the next market opportunity, I guess you could say, uh, for Southfront. Exactly. So if we add up kind of this collected efforts here, you know, across these 54 wallets, I think we say in the blog, you know, it's a bit more than $2 million of crowdsourced fundraising, which in some contexts, you know, we compare it to, say, the the Lazarus attacks on Axie Infinity or, or some of the other kind of major cryptocurrency thefts we've seen, quite a bit smaller. But for me, I went and looked at the shopping list and I kind of did the math, like, the things they're attempting to purchase to resupply the paramilitary groups, $2 million is going to go a long way. Absolutely. And and like you said, when they're showing the intent of what the purpose of it is, I mean, uh, they literally say, hey, we need 150,000 rubles to uh, collect a drone that will be able to bring, quote unquote, gifts uh, with the positions of our Ukrainian, quote unquote, friends. And they hope to be able to shoot it on video and delight you with interesting shots. That's the rough transliteration of it. But I mean, that's their intention. And so with just a little bit of money, it's making a major impact for them. Obviously, something that I think we all want to see a stop put to this effort, like put yourself in your your previous shoes working in the financial system. Like, is there anything that action that can be taken by any of the market participants here? Like, how would we go about shutting this stuff down? I mean, that's the benefit of a blockchain analytics tool uh, at, at its core. Um, being able to identify who these entities are on the blockchain is a massive benefit because if you think in comparison to traditional financial institutions, you have to have an entity behind it. You have to have a bank account behind it. So there has to be either an individual or a company that is facilitating you know, that through a financial institution, whereas in this case, it's just posting a, a cryptocurrency address. So once you have that blockchain analytics tool that can tell you who that address belongs to, it makes it a whole lot easier. It sets up an opportunity, I think, for organizations like Treasury via OFAC to continue designating people who are participating in this, whether as a fundraiser or as a amplifier of that that message. It seems like it also opens the door for, you know, law enforcement to potentially, you know, go after some of the organizations that are source of funds here too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's the another benefit of the blockchain is its transparency shows you every single address that has been sending the donations into those accounts yeah. and everywhere that they're sending the money from receiving those donations outwards. So it, it does provide some actionable, actionable intelligence. I hope our friends in, in government around the world are keeping an eye on this, and it'd be terrific to, to take this whole fundraising operation offline. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. I'm fascinated by the work your team's doing here, and uh, look forward to, to chatting again in the future. Thanks for having me, Ian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We release new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and of course, share with your friends. All right, pop quiz time before you go. Which country tops the Chainalysis 2022 Crypto Adoption Index? I'll give you a hint. It's one of the following countries. India, Russia, Vietnam, Ukraine, the United States, 
the Philippines or Brazil? Not sure? Well, then you need to go and read the Crypto Adoption Index blog. The link's in the show notes. And while you're there, sign up to receive the full report, which we'll publish in about a month.